Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, and welcome to a bonus episode of Eating Fried Chicken in the Shower. I'm James Nokise, and joining me is clinical psychologist Saab Jahal. Kia ora, James. Kia ora, brother. I would like for you today to talk about um, chronic illnesses and what the mental health journey is for someone who is experiencing that. Because I don't think, for myself and probably for a lot of our listeners, we really understand what the mental health journey is for someone who has a chronic illness. Mm. I think the challenge with having a chronic illness is multiple. Mm. So, And part of that is around this idea of identity. Because mm -hmm. often this is something that we're going to have to live with mm -hmm. for a long part of our lives or have to learn how to manage in our lives. So it becomes a part of us. And I guess depending upon when it is that we find out about that in our lives, you know, often the diagnosis and putting a label on it mm -hmm. can be helpful for something mm. that has perhaps been mysterious and something that's been part of our lives, but we didn't really know what, what it was or how it is that we can get a handle on it. You know, mm. having, having a label can be really useful for doing that. But the downside of that is that it becomes perhaps something that we're kind of known for or known as. Right. Uh, you know, it becomes a a part of our identity that people kind of deal with as the leading edge. You know, that's us. As far as we're concerned, we're a person with diabetes or a person who has some other condition. And that becomes the thing that people know us for rather than the other parts of us. So almost in the way that, you know, uh, I mean, when I was growing up, sometimes I was uh, people's Samoan mate. You know, it's like that's your, your mate with diabetes or... So it, it, it's that kind of labeling. Yeah, and so identity is complex, right? So if we have different parts of us, often the chronic illness might almost be a little bit of a shortcut, particularly if we have perhaps uh, an ambiguous kind of like appearance or an ambiguous identity or different parts of our identity which make people feel perhaps a little bit like, well, I'm not very sure about how to talk to them. So they talk to the thing that's most available. So right. often people with disabilities find that, right? People find it hard to mm. look past the very physical perhaps appearance of their disability and then that becomes the defining characteristic of them. Can it be a pitfall if you don't necessarily have your own sense of identity fully formed? So, you know, I mean, we talk about how it can be empowering to have uh, the disease or the, the illness named and you go, ah, right, that's what I've got. Um, and the dangers of it becoming your label. Mm -hmm. But if you are, uh, in an example, uh, someone whose parents are Welsh and Samoan and emigrated to New Zealand and uh, you're supposed to be speaking at least two countries legally, uh, two languages, legally three languages, uh, and you barely speak one. Uh, and so you take a longer time, perhaps, 
than others to have your own sense of identity within you. Mm. Can that can that be difficult then to have another identity mm. with, a, with a chronic illness come into your life? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a really interesting challenge and there's mixed kind of research on it. You know, one of the things that we know is that actually people who have perhaps a couple of, say, racial identities or national identities that mm. they grow up with is that it can take them perhaps a little bit longer mm. to form a coherent kind of solid sense of who they are. But they... The advantage is that they can perhaps walk in different worlds quite comfortably, but it takes a while for that to happen. And then there's the question of, you know, what happens when another facet of your your identity, like a chronic illness, comes along? You know, how does that fit in? But then also, how is it not just how you see yourself, but how do other people see you? And what permission do they give you to occupy that part of your identity publicly, right? Mm. So what often I find is that perhaps, you know, when I'm with my Indian relatives Mm -hmm. or with my Punjabi relatives, or if I'm speaking on Zoom or whatever it is, then that part of me is more to the fore, Mm. right? That's the bit that I lead with. And the other parts of me perhaps recede into the background. But that's because I kind of have permission from them to Mm. be like that, to be that person with them. But then often if we are perhaps, we're not used to it, we're not comfortable with a certain part of our identity, we struggle with that. It's like, well, I don't perhaps know how to be a person with, you know, chronic heart disease. You know, perhaps that's something that I'll get diagnosed with in the future or somebody else might be living with, listening to this now. How do I behave? You know, what are the behaviours that I'm supposed to do to keep myself well? What's that part of my identity when I'm in group with other people going through, you know, physical rehabilitation therapy or something like that? It's dynamic, right? It changes throughout your life. Mm. And that's some of, some of the things that we have to be flexible with in terms of our, our identity. Because I think, uh, speaking as someone who's mixed race, one thing I'm often asked is, which race do I identify with mm. the most? Which is often what they're really saying is, are you Welsh? Or are you Samoan? Mm, mm. uh, and of course, I grew up in New Zealand, so I go, well, I'm, I'm a New Zealander. And that, but that, even then, I feel like I'm skipping around mm, mm. their answer. Mm. There is a, it feels to me, and I think it has for a lot of mixed race kids, like there is a mental weight to that question. Yes, absolutely. And I think actually, in its worst extremes, it's actually quite dehumanizing because mm. the question can be, what are you? Yes. Not who are you? I mean, I've definitely had what are you over the years. Yeah, yeah. And so what message does that send, right? It's like you're not even considered a person. You're considered just a category. Yeah. Right? And I just want to file you so that I know how it is that I'm supposed to deal with you in my mind rather than actually paying attention to the whole of you and the nuance of you, right? And so, yeah, I think that that is possibly quite a common experience for people who are for perhaps uh, multiracial backgrounds. And it's really interesting, depending upon whether you are kind of minority majority, perhaps in your um, context in which you're growing up, right? So let's say in New Zealand, you might be Māori, white, Samoan, white, Pacific white, whatever it is. But passing for white Mm. within a certain culture where the dominant, perhaps, majority is white European is a very different experience than for perhaps if you're multiracial but two minorities Mm. as parents. So you might be Pacifica and 
uh, Māori as mm. your parents. That would be a very, very difficult, different multiracial experience and a different kind of sense of identity that you would have to negotiate. I think it was, for me personally, it's, it's been a strange one because I appear more Pacific as I get older as I'm aging into my Pacific appearance. And when I was younger, I definitely appeared more Caucasian. It's probably the facial hair. Mm -hmm. But to my Samoan family, they've often spoken of me, the elders, as you know, their Palangi nephew, not in a derogatory sense, but that's the box I sit into. Whereas, as I've said, to my Caucasian family, I'm often the, the Samoan member of the family. Mm -hmm. And it does make you aware of your mixed raceness. Mm -hmm. But what I'm hearing from you is that those two spaces, people do find a way to walk in both. It's not and and or. There is a there is a way that you are both. Do you think we as society are, are still becoming accustomed to that idea? Yeah, I think that there is nuance in it that people become accustomed to and can actually be proactive about, right? So you just mentioned the way that perhaps you curate or cultivate yeah. your experience, your, your appearance and your experience as you get older, depending upon who you're talking to. And I think people curate and cultivate their dress you know, depending mm. upon which context that they're going to be in. People learn to navigate and become very experienced. One of the problems that people can bump into is then within that context, who gives you permission and then who is witnessing your nuance, witnessing your identity within that particular context. So yeah, it can get really complex. Mm. But what we know is that actually people from multiracial backgrounds are and grow into and develop ways of navigating these worlds, but they have to be given the space to inhabit and try that out. Mm. because, like you say, it's dynamic and it changes. And to bring it back to my original question, while we are talking about uh, race in this example, it really boils down to identity. So for people, again, with chronic illness or any other kind of uh, part of their life which they can feel is labelled for them, you know, there, there are ways in which you can change your dynamic, change the way people uh, perceive you, change the way you move. Yeah, absolutely. And it may be that, you know, the, the disease that you have maybe is something that you have to think about later on in your life, or it may be something that affects you when you are um, thinking about having children or something like that. And so it will have a bigger impact upon different parts and, uh, and stages of your life, which is something that you have to grow into and understand how it shapes your identity and your sense of self in yourself, but also perhaps how you're perceived by other people and family members as well. Clinical psychologist, Saab Jahal, thank you very much. Kia ora, James. Kia ora. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia 
gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.